I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your, Your Angry, Angry Neighborhood, Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Keegan's back. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Very excited to be back. Yes. <laughs> Oh my, oh my gosh. gosh, it was such a whirlwind trip, but um, really good. You know, for those who don't know, I was away doing Black Arts Alliance stuff in my hometown of Springfield, Missouri, and it was really awesome. I'm really glad that we were able to get this group of, you know, black performers together doing during Black History Month. Yeah. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of concern right now because of COVID. And I want to make sure that everybody does understand that, like, we did all of the protocols. Everybody who came was masked the whole time. There was an audience, but it was very limited and spaced. Yeah. Like, everything was spaced. We sold, like, less than half of the tickets so that there was like a lot of distance between everybody. Everybody right. stayed masked the whole time. Yeah. Um, there were temperature checks. Oh, all yeah. All the things, all the things were, were in place. I and, know. It's, um, it's crazy how uh, there has been kind of set up with this routine now, especially like in the entertainment industry with like, you know, constant testing and temperature checks and all this stuff. Because when I was working, uh, when I was nannying and the families that were musicians started to go back to work I mean, they were getting like two to three COVID tests a week. It was oh, yes. crazy. Yes. I have a lot of friends who are working on sets right now because in California, I mean, the film industry is such a huge part of our economy. Yeah. And so, you know, that's become an essential thing, you know, yeah. that they've, they've put in. So I have a lot of friends who work on film sets and same thing. They get tested yeah. 
constantly. I got tested <laughs> many times, you know, like yeah. in the lead up in the lead up to doing this. But yeah, it was it was great. And thank you to everybody who's reached out and thank you for all of the support. And thank you to you listeners for all of your patience. Um <laughs> with me as I'm trying to navigate having all of these balls in the air at the same time. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And thank you to you, Matt, again, for holding down the fort while I was gone. <laughs> I do what I can. I do what I can. I, I just feel so bad. Like when I did the mini, cause we, I, you know, I was just feeling keeking in on everything that, you know, happened with trying to get guests on the mini and everything. Uh, I was just like, sorry guys, it's just me. <laughs> I don't I'm think alone. anybody is you know, everybody is fine, I'm sure, with that. I hope so. I definitely uh, feel an absence when you're not there. It's, it is, it kind of feels like I'm a newscaster, you know? I like, kind of like that, though. That's kind of fun. Like, last Thursday, Ted Cruz flew to Cancun and blah, 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 blah. And then I start, like, commenting my own opinions on the things that I just said. It's, it's like a multiple, like, Madigan world in my head having to talk to myself. But... Luckily, I'm a really good talker and I can talk to myself very easily. So I got it done. Well, this <laughs> week, <laughs> well, well, this week um, we are going to be doing a feminist fave. I know that we re-released a feminist fave episode last week and generally we do try to space them out. Yeah. But it being, you know, Black History Month still, yes. I wanted the opportunity to highlight somebody new Me too. Uh, that we haven't talked about before. And people seem to like these episodes. So yeah. I hope and, you're okay. Yeah. And time-wise, especially with you traveling, like these I feel like we can get really into and get some good notes on without having to dig into like multiple like Wikipedia sources to try to find any information, you know? Um, although my person... It's very hard to find any information about her. So it was a little interesting. You wanted to make it challenging for yourself. I understand. Well, this is someone that I tried to cover like a year ago, probably around Black History Month last year. Um, and I was I didn't have enough time to really find what I wanted. I had just seen a documentary with Max and he knows some stuff about her. So I finally was like, you know what? I bet if I just like really looked, I can find enough stuff. So I found some interviews and things like that. And I'm really excited because I think this one is not someone that anybody's really heard of. Ooh, okay. I love these. I love whenever I just get to go to Madigan school and you can just teach me about somebody. I'm going to teach you. Well, I'm definitely not an expert because this person is uh, very quiet, very secluded, uh, doesn't really share a whole lot about her life. But my God, is she cool. I am going to be talking about the singer... The funk singer Betty Davis. Okay. Do you know All right. Betty I, Davis? No. Okay, mm -mm. I'm gonna describe her for you. So she is she was a model. She had this what I can only describe as like a, a voluminous afro, huge, huge afro, 1960s, 1970s, uh, you know, tied shirts, denim shorts, high boots. And she hot. Okay, this she's sounds hot like, as fuck. And it sounds like a style icon. She is. I love it. And she was known for you know she didn't say she said she didn't sing. She projected, so she would do these like growls and howls, and she would gyrate and hold the microphone in weird ways, and like was just she was very sexually expressive. 
uh, as a young 20-something girl in the 1960s, 70s for a time that that was not okay for black women. So because of that, she never really reached notoriety until years, years later. So I am going to tell you the story of one of my favorite singers, Betty Davis. Okay. Okay, so she was born Elizabeth Mabry in Durham, North Carolina on July 26th, 1945. She lived in Durham until she was 12 and then relocated to Pittsburgh. When she was 12, she began writing songs and was given a few opportunities to record them in the 60s. In 1964, she recorded Get Ready for Betty and I'm Gonna Get My Baby Back. Get ready for Betty. I Uh love it. (laughs) Though she loved singing and songwriting, she didn't think that her voice was anything special. She said, I've never considered myself a great singer. I think Shaka and Aretha are great singers, but I could connect with the ambiance of a song. I could project my feelings and my words to the music. When she was only 16 years old, she moved by herself to New York and enrolled in the Fashion Institute of Technology. To support herself, she worked as a model and a club manager. She co-founded and managed a dance club called The Cellar and was signed with Wilhelmina Modeling Agency. With them, she appeared on magazines like Seventeen, Ebony, Jet, and Glamour. She was once even a guest on The Dating Game. She loved the New York nightlife and would meet famous figures like Andy Warhol, Eric Clapton, and Jimi Hendrix. In 1967, the band The Chambers Brothers recorded one of her songs titled Uptown to Harlem, giving her her first ever writing credit. Then in 1968, her then-boyfriend, Hugh Maskella, who is known as the father of South African jazz, arranged for her to record a single, Live, Love, Learn, which she now dismisses as being too mushy. (laughs) Betty first laid eyes on jazz trumpeter Miles Davis as a 21-year-old model in New York in the spring of 1968. Miles was 19 years her senior, making him 40 at the time. Yeah. Okie dokie. So Miles Davis, for those of you who are not familiar with the music world at all, he is, I mean, how do you not know who Miles Davis is? He is like the most legendary trumpet player. I mean, trumpet? I think trumpet, yeah. The horns, I always get confused. Trumpet, trombone. I feel like I just said what he was, too. You did. (laughs) Trumpeter. trumpeter, Jazz trumpeter. (laughs) Jazz trumpeter. Okay. Um. Yeah, like he he's like a huge fucking deal. So, you know, Betty's 21. She's a model. She's living in New York. She's like friends with Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and Andy Warhol and like living this like super cool life. And she's cool. Like she is the epitome of everything cool. So, of course, when he meets her, he's like totally pulled in by her. At the time, he was separated from his first wife, a dancer by the name of Frances Davis, and was dating an actress by the name of Cicely Tyson. But oh, Cicely Tyson. Who is Cicely Tyson? Oh, my God. She just passed away a couple of weeks ago. She's if you looked her up, you would know who she is. She has worked forever. She is a massive black icon in the acting world. You would know her. She's been in so many things. Was it like was she like what? What kind of an act? Was she a sitcom actress? Was she a movie actress? No, movies mostly. Movies. Yeah, if you saw her picture, you I'm would sure. know. Yeah. Totally. I didn't realize she was with Miles Davis. Yeah, not for long, because he had, like literally just, he wasn't divorced yet. He was separated from his first wife, and he was like dating her, and then he met Betty, and then 
they immediately started dating. So it sounds like his relationship with Cicely Tyson was pretty short-lived. Um, yeah, he, he just, um, or she just passed away on the 28th. Oh my gosh. I just looked up her, or the 28th of, of January. Of January? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace. At like, she was like 90-something. Yes, yeah. I remember all of the, the posts, posts and everything. Yeah. I know exactly who that is. Oh yeah, my Yeah, she gosh. was 96. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Of course I know who that is. I'm so bad with you. Names. Just didn't it's make horrible. the connection. I it's didn't all good. make it at all. Oh my gosh, that's so crazy! All right, so by early 1968, Miles and Betty are together, and by September 1968, they were married. Now, the marriage only lasted one year. It was a very unhappy marriage, but she decided to keep his last name. She said in an interview in 2018, "Every day married to him was a day I earned the name Davis." Oh, Jesus. Oh, he's a piece of fucking work. I'll get into it. Um, (laughs) But without Betty, Miles Davis would never be the guy that we know of him being today. In the end of the 60s, he worked on his album called Bitches Brew, released in 1969, which Downbeat Magazine called the, quote, most revolutionary jazz album in history. The album began what was known as his electric period, which was inspired by Betty. So she updated his wardrobe from like the classical, like very tailored suits and professional Mm -hmm. look of a jazz musician to what I can only compare to. I was trying to think of like a modern day comparison of like Billy Porter's closet without the gowns. Okay. All right. Like, you know, you've seen pictures of him from that era with like the big furs and the cigarettes and the glasses and that like just very colorful Kind of, you know, what they would Feels call like, androgynous at the time, you know, like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm of getting vibe. kind of like Elton John in that era kind of vibe. Like yeah. big jackets, big glasses, things like that. Yeah, he definitely, he had more of like, or he would wear like tank tops. Like he just, he got like more sexy and colorful funky. and funky yeah. and less like uptight jazz musician. With that album, Miles had initially wanted to name it Witch's Brew until Betty suggested the alliteration Bitches Brew. And I was reading my notes to Max last night to see if he could, like, kind of give me any other tidbits that I wanted to add. And he showed me this really cool picture of Columbia Records sending out a memo letting everybody know that he's changing it to Bitches Brew. Like, please make note. (laughs) Like, it's just everybody couldn't handle that he was making an album called Bitches Brew. What year is this? Like, the early 70s? This was 1969. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Miles has publicly acknowledged how much Betty had an effect on him. He says, Betty was a big influence on my personal life as well as my musical life. The marriage only lasted a year, but that year was full of new things and surprises and helped me point the way I was to go, both in my music and in some ways my lifestyle. Well, I'm glad he had a good time. I know, right? Doesn't sound like she did. Uh, Yeah. She introduced him to popular rock, soul, and funk musicians when he had only really ever been exposed to more classical jazz in the past. Uh, He began, they all became really good friends with Jimi Hendrix. So that was kind of the vibe. He had more of like a rock and roll jazz vibe at this time. That paints the picture. Exactly. And I did look up a picture of her and she is... Beautiful. I could totally see her hanging out with Jimi Hendrix. hundred. Uh, yeah. I mean, and they kind of have like a thing, too. I think they would like hook up. They would stuff. have had beautiful children. Right. Just going to say. Oh, my yeah. God. Unbelievably gorgeous children. So some of the bands that Betty exposed Miles Davis to were people like The Birds, Aretha Franklin, Diane Warwick. Uh, they also really loved to listen to James Brown and, of course, Jimi Hendrix once again. 
The two recorded at least five songs together at Columbia Records. Three of those songs were written by Betty as a young girl, and two were covers. With these recordings, Miles tried to get a record deal for Betty. They recorded an entire album, but in the end it was shelved and was to never be released. In 2007, Betty told a reporter, Miles was afraid that if the record came out, I'd leave him. He thought I'd become a star. He wanted to hold me back in a way. He was very (sighs) old-fashioned. Yeah. Sounds exhausting. Yeah, he had a temper. He was really jealous. Um... He was he was convinced that she was having an affair with Jimi Hendrix during their marriage. Uh, Go and the more, to therapy, yeah, like for real. Oh my god, yeah, he was just super controlling and like I think jealous of her and her talent because she was amazing. Like she would write and arrange her own music from the time that she was twelve. Like she's just incredibly talented and cool and gets it. You know what I mean? Where I think he but, didn't. Yeah. It's so frustrating for me, though, because I'm just like, look, if you can't handle a secure, Uh competent, independent woman, then don't get with one. Like, I feel like there's this weird thing where a lot of men are attracted to that energy because that energy is attractive. But you should know thyself well enough to know that if you are a jealous, controlling person, don't get with a like magnetic, charismatic, independent woman. Exactly. That's why. Unless that's part of the ploy. You know what I mean? I don't know enough about Miles Davis, but I don't know unless that was part of the whole point of keeping her down. I don't know. Um, He definitely used her music and her face a lot in his career. Uh, Her face was on the cover of his album, I'm Gonna Say This Wrong, Filet de Kilimanjaro? Kilimanjaro? No idea. I don't know. (laughs) No idea. Um, And he had a song called Mademoiselle Marbury, which was written for her, and it was a reworking of Jimi Hendrix's song, The Wind Cries Mary. So funnily enough, like I said, the music that bonded them together would be the thing that drove them apart. Uh, Miles was jealous and convinced that Betty was having an affair with Hendrix. In his autobiography, Miles says Betty was, quote, too young and wild and doubled down on the idea of an affair. Betty did is, not- is she too young and wild or are you? Is it, is it a you problem? I think it might be a you problem. I think it's a you problem as well. Yeah, especially because of what Betty has to say. So after Miles's autobiography came out, she was pretty pissed. So she publicly denied the affair saying, I was so angry with Miles when he wrote that. It was disrespectful to Jimmy and to me. Miles and I broke up because of his violent temper. They divorced in 1969, making the marriage only a year long. But after they divorced, they still remained really good friends and influences over each other's music. So there was enough of like a love and friendship there that they remained like cool with each other. That's interesting. Right? Very interesting. But I don't think they weren't like in each other's daily lives, I would assume. But like, I think they had a lot of respect for each other musically, but I think he was too jealous and intense to handle like being with someone like that. I really feel like that shows a lot of maturity on her part totally. for being as young as she was to be able to kind of say like, look, we don't work because a lot of even older people can't get a grasp on that to say like, hey, yeah. we tried it. It didn't work romantically. Yeah. But well, when I get know. into like, so I'm kind of giving you her bio now, but when I get into kind of like what her music was about, it kind of explains all of this a little bit better too, like why she had this like very confident, independent 
streak to her in life. So following her divorce, she wrote songs for Lionel Richie's group, the Commodores, and other artists working on demos. She would like write new music for new artists and things like that. Motown Records actually asked her to sign a deal with them for songwriting, but she refused to sign as it required that she give up her publishing rights. So she was like, no, my work is mine. Bye. Mm -hmm. And didn't do it. Also in 1969, a promoter for the Woodstock Festival signed her to his label, which was called Just Sunshine, which is the most like Woodstock record label. I I love that. They're like, it's just sunshine. Like nothing else. Just plain and simple, just sunshine. Exactly. (laughs) So with them, she finally produced her debut album, just called Betty Davis, which was released in 1973. But before that, she moved to London in 1971 to pursue her modeling career further. She still wrote music, and after a year was headed back to the United States to record her new album and work with the band Santana. Betty wrote and arranged every song on her first album. To tour, Davis was accompanied by an assembled band they called Funk House. The band included drummer Greg Arico from the family Stone, as well as bassist Larry Graham. When Larry wasn't playing bass, she brought on Doug Rauch, I think you pronounce his name, from Santana. She also had the guitarist for Santana and later Journey, uh, as well as the Pointer Sisters singing Background, which sounds amazing. For those Whoa. of you who don't know who the Pointer Sisters are, I'm so excited. I would love to listen to this. You're gonna li- like you're gonna listen to her for the rest of the day. I promise you. What an incredible group of people! It's insane, and she was the mastermind behind everything. She produced the next two albums after this as well: writing, arranging, recording. All of it. In 1974, she released They Say I'm Different and began to tour on the East Coast and in California. She had a brilliant process of writing. She would hum a tune, put it on a tape, and teach it to the band in parts. She was very particular and had a whole song in her head before it came out. Her bandmates had discussed her perfectionism, but Davis says she never felt like there was any sort of problem with a woman being in charge. She always felt heard and respected by the band. I think she also just had that, like no bullshit attitude where like even if a guy were to say something in the band like I think she would have bitten his head off yeah I mean she probably had a no assholes allowed policy totally. you know like, like you if, wouldn't if mess. you're gonna yeah yeah and it sounds like she wouldn't kowtow to anything anyway it would just be like hey if you can't handle it you can leave yeah. like there's the door totally So unfortunately, none of those three albums were a commercial success. She had two minor hits on the Billboard R&B charts, reaching number 66 with If I'm in Luck, I Might Get Picked Up, and in 1975, Shut Off the Lights. She continued to tour and in 1976 recorded her fourth album, Crashin' from Passion, which was also met with little commercial success. Her lack of popularity gave her a cult following, though. Her fans were enamored by her openly sexual attitude, which was controversial at the time. Because of this, she only ever achieved success in Europe, where displays of sexuality was much more welcomed. In the United States, she was banned from performing on television because they found her stage persona to be too sexually aggressive. Some of her shows were boycotted, and her songs weren't played on the radio due to pressure from religious groups and the NAACP. 
Ooh, I mean, we should definitely have an entire episode about um, misogynoir, which is that kind of like deep rooted misogyny within black communities against, you know, perpetrated against black women, uh, which we have touched on briefly here and there, but was very prevalent within many civil rights movements and organizations, including the NAACP. Yeah. 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 In this Ugh. instance, the women's liberation movement also was not a big fan of Betty Davis, which is crazy because, like, you'd think that everything that she's doing is what you're standing for. But um, if you're looking at, you know, the Betty for Dan's uh, and, you know, that older generation that was kind of spearheading the second wave, I can see where she would be too far in their eyes, you know? Well, it just goes to show you, and again, we've talked about this on this show, but it does go to show you that. If you don't fit into a very strict binary or box yeah. um, within any movement, it's it, it, it's hard to thrive in that movement. I mean, that's why intersectionality is so important and became such a big deal it, to exactly. the feminist movement because it was just like we, we saw that all the way in every single wave of the feminist movement. There was some version of you're not doing this the right way or you're too radical or you're causing waves, which is going to slow down our progress. Exactly. So we need you to put yourself on mute, you know? Um, yeah, we'll deal with what you want later. Let's work on this first and, you know, right. kind of placate, mm-hmm. placating the situations and pushing it back. Uh, so this is what Betty had to say about the NAACP kind of taking part in ruining her career. They've been programmed to think that black women who shake their asses are hoary. The NAACP called up the record company. I have to be honest, I didn't even know what they stood for. What are they? Who are they? I thought about it. They're not trying to advance me. They're trying to stop me from making a living. They stopped all my airplay in Detroit. In Detroit! Oh, my God. Assholes. Yeah, I mean, it it, it has similar vibes. I feel like there was some pushback whenever Beyonce did that thing where she did the big feminist behind her before one of her shows. Um, There was some pushback. I think Annie Lennox uh, had something to say about it. Uh Other, not only, you know, white feminists, but also there were some black women or some people who were in the working in civil rights circles who had issues with that because they thought, you know, Beyonce's up there wearing a leotard and, like, shaking her ass. Exactly. How can you be feminist and sexualize yourself at the same time? You know, things like... And that was definitely the issue that they had with Betty. And the her record label, Island, really tried to kind of fit her into that mold and put different images to her to try to see, like, if they could make her more marketable. Uh, she said they tried to cover her legs. They tried to get her to wear dresses. They straightened her hair. Um, and she was like, no, that's that's just not me. But at the time, that was what was done to black performers in order for them to reach commercial success. They essentially had to um, turn themselves into what the white population felt the most comfortable with, unfortunately. And that was dressing, sounding, looking like them in every way that they could. In a 1976 interview, Betty speculated about the impact her look could have on her career. One thing I found out about this business, they have to be able to categorize you. If they can't bag you, you're fucked. And aesthetically, Mm -hmm. they couldn't categorize me. I'm not Mm -hmm. Tina Turner. I don't wear a wig. And I don't have three girls shaking it up behind me. The acts that have made it it wore straight hair, earrings, and long gowns. Her singing voice was also revolutionary. So 
like I said in the beginning, she wasn't just a typical singer where she would just sing the notes to the words to her song. She it was like this experience. It was like a visceral, like animalistic sounds like a like a derogatory thing to say in this instance, but like she really did have like this very primal like way of her music where you could just feel everything that she was feeling because of how she projected her voice. It was just so cool. More on her fashion. So I'm going to describe like a, some of like my favorite looks that were on her covers. So we have her first album, Betty Davis, on vinyl. And I was actually playing it while I was doing my research last night. It was so much fun. So on that, there's like three pictures of her. Big smile on her face. Her hair as big as always. She's got like a tied blouse, denim shorts, and thigh-high silver platform boots. On her second album cover, she wore a high-collared sleeveless leotard with kind of this like, it was like a zebra print, but looked kind of futuristic. And she was on like a bike. And then for Nasty Gal, she wore a lace black teddy and high heels on the cover of that album. I know, girl. Betty's vulnerability with the public about her sexuality when black women have been dehumanized and whittled down to sexual beings throughout history resonated with many black women at the time. Black feminist scholars have noted that black women, particularly middle class women, have developed a culture of silence pertaining to their sexuality in response to the history of being characterized as overly sexual and improperly feminine. So while they were trying to kind of fit her into this box of being, you know, this toned down, less sexual, explicit version of herself, at the same time that is happening, Marvin Gaye released his smash hit, Let's Get It On. Literally the Mm -hmm. same year so if that doesn't show you kind of the dichotomy of what was going on here like a guy expressing his sexuality and his wants and desires was fine but a woman doing so was not right well I mean I think a lot of that is cultural with men and women period we've had that discussion many times where it's just like men are allowed to be sexual and in fact the more promiscuous they are they're almost it's almost seen as like a badge of honor whereas when women do it um, they're looked at as sluts (laughs) you know exactly but but within the black community yes like even worse like I remember there being such strict rules like at my grandma's house about what we were allowed to wear, how we were allowed to sit. Um, yeah. And, and it would very easily be considered improper for women. Definitely. And that was like part of what made Betty so amazing to, I think, that whole generation of like younger black women at the time because she had the, you know, she had the hoo-hahs to go out there and kind of like do that and not be afraid of it. Like, and just be who she was, be accepted by you know, a certain circle of people where I feel like that was never really an option. It almost sounds like she kind of like opened the door for like the Grace Joneses, you know, or like people who would follow oh, yeah. after. Oh, yeah. And yeah. she she's definitely aware of her power over the music industry. It's pretty great. Um, so during this time when they were trying to get Nasty Gal out and they were kind of trying to like revamp her image and all this kind of stuff, like nothing was working. So they just shelved it to never, ever be released. They took all three of her albums, locked them in a vault, never to be seen again. When speaking of this time, she said, when I was told it was over, I just accepted it, and nobody else was knocking at my door. So, I told you she has a cult following. (laughs) So, through the years, the fans that have been, like, so devoted and wanting her music to get back out into the world have been pushing for these 
albums to be reissued and re-released. So finally in 2007 and in 2009, all three of her albums were reissued and are available to anybody that wants to listen. So suddenly there was this whole new generation of music lovers who were discovering this genius, like where the hell have you been all my life the last 40 years? And she started to really quickly, heavily influence a lot of the musicians that we love today. Uh, one thing that it, that I found interesting because she never really speaks on feminism. She doesn't really call herself a feminist. I think she probably didn't even feel like there was a space for her in that world at the time. So that really wasn't on her radar. But later on in life, she was asked about whether or not she was making a feminist statement in her songs. And she said, how could I think about feminism with the songs I was writing? She laughs. I never thought women had power. We had power in the bedroom, but we didn't have political power. I actually think that's really an enlightening statement Uh coming from her, like where people thought that her hypersexuality was an issue. It sounds like she was really and I've had this conversation on this podcast before where sex was used as a tool by women and people like to point to that and look at it as though it's derogatory or bad. When in reality, there was so little power to be had yeah. that women really had to utilize whatever power they did have. Totally. And so and it was I, her I, harnessing I think, that power. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Her that having that kind of like hypersexual persona. Yeah. But it's like our bodies are who she is. And our bodies are political. You know what I mean? So to her at the time, it's like, no, what I'm doing isn't political. But actually, everything that she did was incredibly political, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Like, every time... Or had a political influence. Exactly. Like, she... Mm -hmm. Everything she did made a statement. You know, her existence was a statement, you know? Absolutely. Her song titles and lyrics she created were also incredibly feminist in nature. She has a song titled The Anti-Love Song, where she voices her decision to avoid commitment. The narrator of the song explains how men have her shaking and climbing walls, but states that the men would fall harder for her. She sings, I'd have you eating your ego, and warns, I'd make you pocket your pride. Her singing style set her apart from other black female artists at the time. Unlike the majority of black artists at the time, she didn't have a background in gospel music. She wasn't a church attendee. She was raised on musicians like Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, and Big Mama Thornton. She was known for holding a note almost to her voice's breaking point, somewhere between a sing and a wail until it crescendos into an untethered scream. I wish I could like play a clip of it right now. Just like, it's crazy. I really, I'm going to listen to her for sure after this. It's so good. So she still did some touring. She was still kind of in the music world. And then in 1980, her father passed away and she really felt like she lost a part of herself. Uh, She went to Japan in the early 80s, did a few tours there. And while she was in Japan, she went to Mount Fiji and met with silent monks, where she had a spiritual revelation. And after that time, she says, I just got very quiet. She moved back to Philadelphia and kind of just has lived a quiet life ever since. Artists such as Ice Cube and Talib Kweli, who have rapped over her beats, Lenny Kravitz, and other rock artists who have covered her songs. Prince has very obviously mimicked Betty Davis in a lot of his career, his vocal style, his squeals, even his apparel. During his, what era was it, his Dirty Mind period, he wore like a thong and a raincoat. Mm -hmm. which was a direct uh, inspiration from Betty, who wore a a slip and a raincoat for her Nasty Gal tour. 
Luckily, Betty is well aware of her influence. In 1975, she commented, I made it easy for a lot of those ladies out there, because I was out there first. I'm glad they've made it, but like, I'm the one that paid the dues. (laughs) (laughs) I love that she owns that and that she's not being like super humble about it even no, just like she's pissed no. yeah so i read a really great interview that she did in 2019 from uh when her documentary called a little bit strange came out and that's the one that max and i watched it's super good it's only 55 minutes long like it's a really quick watch super super good uh, but what'd you watch it on Oh, God, it was like almost a year ago that I watched it. Oh, okay, okay. I'll look it up and I'll I'll put a picture of it in the show notes. So you all okay, know, cool. will know where to find it. God, I should have looked it up. My God. Um, but so when that was coming out, you know, she's kind of been in the shadows for like 40 years and suddenly people were like, can we get an interview? Can we get an interview? So I read this really great interview that she did in 2019 and they asked her if we could expect her to get on stage anytime soon. She said... With age, your looks change. I want to leave them with what they had. Oh, I hear you with that as well. (laughs) Yeah, she did write a song, though, for one of the producers of the documentary that she did, who was a musician. So in 2019, one of her songs was released for the first time since, you know, 1974 or 75. It is called A Little Bit Hot Tonight, performed by Danielle Meggio. And that is Betty Davis. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I did not know who this person was. I think that that is so fascinating. And I can't wait to listen to her music now. You're going to be obsessed. Like we've got um, like some of our favorite like record art and stuff on our wall. We've got a Betty Davis piece up. We love her. I love it. Big Betty. I love it. My mom has been wanting me to cover Betty Davis for a while, too. So she's going to be happy with me. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. That was so good. All right, so I wanted to do someone who I feel like this person gets highlighted a lot every Black History Month. Like there's one very famous photo that I'm sure everybody has seen. Um, and, you know, you might know the the basics as like this person was a trailblazer and like the first to do this, you know, but I didn't actually know the details of her life. So I wanted to look into it a little further. I'm going to be talking about Bessie Coleman. Oh, yes. Yeah. That was one of she's she was on my list. I'm really glad I didn't do her. Oh, gosh. And so we have two Elizabeths as well. Yes. Well, Elizabeth Betty and Betty. Betty. Yeah. Oh, that's so cute. It's cute. I love it when yeah. that happens. It was like when we did. Um, I remember we did Claudette Colvin and Rosa Parks. Didn't we nickname them like Auntie Claudie and Grandma Rosa yes. or something like that? <laughs> and one one week we did two Marys as well. Like yes. this happens sometimes and we don't coordinate any of this stuff. So it's fun to me whenever that happens. And you know. how we've only ever had one instance where we've done the same person when we did Topanga and then yes. ended up just doing it together. I can't believe that's but- only happened once. There was another time where we were going to do the same person, but we had found out early. And so I changed mine. That happened one time as well. But like, oh my gosh. yeah, it doesn't happen that often. It just goes to show how many fantastic women or people there are out there. So many. But cover. at the same time, when you Google, you know, black feminists through history, you kind right? of get the same like 10 over and over and over oh, again. Yes. So yeah, yeah. you kind of have to dig like, well, then who did those people know? Who did those? Because there's so many of them out there. But unfortunately, there's like 10 that are focused on every year. And that's about right. it. The same same people get highlighted over and over again. And it's not to say that those people are not like 
instrumental uh, trailblazing, groundbreaking women. Uh, but it is nice to kind of venture out. I didn't know anything about Betty Davis. I love that now I know a little bit more, you know. I know. It's funny because um, I think, you know, even when I would Google Betty Davis, they would correct the spelling because Betty, my Betty Davis is Betty with a Y, but the actress Betty Davis from what was it, the 1920s and 30s or whatever? She is... Yeah, Betty with an E. With an E, yeah. But mm-hmm. I would always... I would Google my Betty Davis and then the other Betty Davis would show up. And I was like, no, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, you almost have to type in... Like, I typed in when I wanted to see your picture, Betty Davis singer, and then it will pop up. That's what I did. But- or Betty Davis funk, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Or, or Miles mm-hmm. Davis... Other than that... I love... I actually kind of love... Because I actually think that Marbury is a really pretty last name... But I would wonder if part of why she held on to Davis is because there's a parallel between Betty Davis, the actress, and Betty Davis, where she gets to kind of play off of that. I think it could have been a play off of that. I think more than that, she kind of with what she said that she deserved the name after their year of marriage. She's like, you're already rich and famous. No one gives a shit about me. I made you who you are. I'm taking your goddamn name and running with it because everything you are is because of me. So I deserve the recognition too. So to me, I think it was kind of like, I deserve to be just as big as Miles Davis. So I'm going to take his name. So everybody knows that I'm attached to that in some way. I don't know. I feel like it's just, it's it's a leg up. It's like if my last name was Pitt. Right. Yeah, sure. (laughs) You know, I don't know why Pitt was the first name that popped into my head, but you know. Right, where everybody is then questioning, like, is she related to Brad Pitt? It would. It's it's weird how that works in Hollywood, where it would open doors for you. It's strange. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, Okay, let's talk about Bessie, shall we? Bessie. Bessie was born on January 26th, 1892. That's Anthony's birthday. I just feel like I need to point that out. January 26th. You always need to point out when there's birthday ties. It's very important. Yes. So she's an Aquarius. Keep it in mind. All right. Uh, And she was born in Atlanta, Texas, which I didn't even know there was an Atlanta, Texas. Had no idea. But apparently. Um, And she was the 10th of 13 children. Oh, that poor mother. Why? Right. Why? Why would somebody choose to have that many children? If you have that many children or want that many children, I'm not judging you. But like, what's the point? <laughs> well, workers. That's a good. That's a great. <laughs> First point. of all, you've got to have more kids also to babysit the other kids. Right. I feel like that was a big thing. Is like you, if you worked on a farm, it's like yeah, you pump out a bunch of kids and then they get old enough to like help you work the farm. Yeah. But like, I think that's part of it. Sometimes people have a lot of children for religious reasons. And also, you know, there just wasn't birth control or anything. Did I tell you that I went, sorry to totally go off topic here, but I went to middle school with someone that had 12 brothers and sisters. It was a family of 13. I I did too. Well, I went to middle school with somebody who had 11 brothers and sisters. So 12 kids total. Yeah. Did they also have like a bus to get to school pretty much every day? Like their family car was like the size of a bus. Yes. It was one of those big vans. Yeah. Yeah. But like, especially in this time period, I wouldn't want to have that many kids. It's too many mouths to feed. Well, and your likelihood of surviving that many births like and pregnancies whenever like science was not what it is today that's a great point um i feel like would be really hard and four of bessie's siblings actually did not make it to adulthood yeah. so only nine of the 13 would survive again just because that's kind of how things went back then i know especially in rural areas 
But so her father, George Coleman, had grandparents who were Cherokee. So he was part Cherokee. And then her mother, Susan Coleman, was African-American. Her father worked as a sharecropper and her mother was a part-time maid. So when Bessie was two years old, the family moved to Wallahatchie, Texas. I'm pretty sure that's how you say that. I think so. Where they continued to live as sharecroppers. And, you know, we talked about this when we talked about our John Lewis episode and kind of the life of a sharecropper and how your routine as a child would get interrupted. Your education would get interrupted again because they were making so little like it was very um, predatory what happened to a lot of sharecroppers black sharecroppers especially in the south during this time and so she would have to stop going she started going to school at the age of six Uh and she would walk four miles each day to her segregated one room school but she thrived at school she learned to read she loved to read um she was an outstanding math student and she completed her elementary education there but her routine of going to school once a year during the cotton harvest would be completely interrupted. Yeah. Like she wouldn't be going to school. I mean, if you remember when we were talking about John Lewis, his brother would kind of like put in extra work in order for John to go to school or to spend more time studying because the brother kind of saw that that's where his his talents lie. You know what I mean? So, right. And it requires that, yeah. basically. Someone, someone else kind double, of stepping in. Double the work, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and things became more complicated and difficult for the family when in 1901, George Coleman left the family. So he went to Oklahoma um, to Indian Territory, as it was referred to at, at the time, um, to find better opportunities. But I don't know what happened here if he left and told them not to follow. But some of the articles that I read had kind of like differing wording. Some of them said like his wife and children did not follow which kind of sounds like a choice that they made right but it also kind of sounds like he especially I don't that doesn't make sense to me because why would a mother of 13 or 9 depending on what stage of life this was why would you be just like no it's cool we'll stay here you go like that's so much I mean, work for one one person yes I don't yes. see where and she would be cool with staying back Right. And I don't know if he sent money back to the family to help them get by because, I mean, this is a a lot of kids. And I think it would be very difficult for the mother to take care of all these children. Now, I know that Bessie and so I'm assuming also some of her siblings did work to help out. Right. um, uh, To help her. Yeah, I'm sure. In the field. Yeah. And any... Like we said, you know, the older kids, you know, help take care of the younger ones, help take on more responsibilities out in the field, things like that, where right. I guess, yeah, there would be more help. But I just can't see a world where a mother would, a mother with that many children would be like, no, it's cool. We'll hang back here. I don't know. That's just my thought. Right. Yeah. My opinion. Yeah. I don't know any more about that. I, I would be interested to know the circumstances of that. Mm-hmm. But at the age of 12, Bessie was accepted into the Missionary Baptist Church School on a scholarship. And throughout her childhood, she not only worked um, in the fields to help provide for her family, but she also took on another job as a laundress. And by the time she was 18, she had saved enough money to attend the Colored Agricultural and Normal University, which is now called Langston University, in Langston, Oklahoma. So I also wonder if she moved to Oklahoma to be closer to... Her dad? I'm not oh. sure. Well, and um, so I was going to ask, because you said that she had gotten a scholarship to, uh, was it a high school? 
It was a Baptist church school, but I think it was a like was it, middle school, high school. Was it she segregated? Was I'm assuming it was okay, segregated. Okay, because that was just yeah. my, my next question because, I don't know. I was just curious yeah. if, if she grew up only going to, to segregated schools or if there was a time where she was... Well, I guess that would be... What year would have that been? That would have been early 1900s. Yeah, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, it <laughs> would have been mind. segregated. Yeah, it would have been almost, segregated. Almost certainly. But, I mean... From a young age, you can kind of see that she establishes how hard she's willing to work to accomplish things because she is going through with her education, working hard enough that she's able to obtain a scholarship at a pretty young age while also working essentially two jobs as a child. Yeah, and that's the thing is that, you know, this this is a very obvious statement I'm about to make, but it was very clear that the government did not care whether or not the black citizens of the country were getting an education so they would make it pretty much as difficult as possible for them to even get to school or to get or you know to be in classrooms with kids of all different ages and learning levels like they basically put up in my opinion every roadblock possible to give Mm -hmm. a black child a fair shake at an education so in order to get a quality education you have to almost have this like motivating spirit like Bessie did to work so hard and go out of your way when it's not just being offered to you you know that's definitely Mm -hmm. something that I think all of us take for granted as a privilege going to school you know yeah it definitely has to be a high priority for you for sure I mean and the fact that she was able to work both these jobs go to school and save enough money to give to her family while also saving enough money for her own education is is really impressive. She's so already a hero. She, End of her story. Right? That's it. She's already a hero. Right? But she saved enough money to go to this school, but only had enough money to go for one term. So she went for one term. She ran out of money, and then she had to return home after that. At the age of 23, she went to live with her brothers in Chicago, and she went to Burnham School of Beauty Culture in 1915 Ooh. and became a manicurist in a local barber shop. Meanwhile, her brothers served in the military during World War One, and they would come home with all of these stories of their time in France. Her brother John showed up drunk one day, came home drunk one day, and began taunting Bessie about her job as a manicurist. And he was basically teasing her and saying, I know, I know. Uh, Such a brother. He was teasing her. And saying that the women in France had all of these opportunities and that they were so liberated that they could even fly planes. Oh, And wow. there was a biography called Queen Bess Daredevil Aviator um, where he was quoted as saying, black women ain't never going to fly, not like those women I saw in France. And Ooh. Coleman replied, that's it. You just called it for I me. I was going to say, it's like when you tell certain types of people that they're never going to do something and cannot do Mm -hmm. something, Mm -hmm. they're going to do it. So him being kind of a drunken asshole actually like helps shape the course of history. What else are brothers for, right? Right. Giving you a good nudge in the right direction, but a little too hard. (laughs) American flight schools at the time um, did not admit women or black people so Robert S. Abbott who was the founder and publisher of the Chicago Defender encouraged her to study abroad he publicized that Bessie was wanting to do this thing in his newspaper and she received a financial scholarship from banker Jesse Bingand as well as the Chicago Defender so she also advocated a lot for herself um, in trying to get benefactors to 
help fund her education. She also took a higher paying job as a manager of a chili restaurant in addition to her job as a manicurist and also began taking French lessons at night to prepare her for her trip and also because all of her applications had to be written in French. So she's when did she working sleep? two jobs. I don't know. Because <laughs> she's working these two jobs to earn money and also taking French lessons and and apparently got good enough to be able to fill out all of her applications because she was finally accepted at the Cadron's, I bet you it's Cadron or something, Brothers School. Yeah, school. I'm probably make, butchering that. I'm so sorry. Just make a very good oh, sound for oh, any... Just way in the back of the throat. Just any French word. Cadron. <laughs> Brothers School of Aviation in France, in like northern France. So on November 20th, 1920, she set off for Europe aboard the liner SS Imperator. There she began a seven-month course in flying, and it was this plane, it's a Newport Type 82, which is a 27-foot-long biplane with a 40-foot wingspan, and the plane was so fragile that she had to inspect every part of it before she got into the air. Sounds like it now, kind of a, a tiny, tiny little body, big, big wings. Big, big wings, yeah. which seems like double actually... the size of the... Bo- well, I guess that would make is sense. It- like, have you ever made... Um, like, if you're making a paper airplane and then you attach something to the bottom, you would want to have a bigger wingspan for it to, like, stay up. So I guess that would make sense. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand aeronautics, so I'm sure it's... Or engineering or whatever. Not so I'm pilot. sure it makes sense, but it seems like it would be hard to control. I was also just, like, really kind of blown away. I mean, of course, we're talking about 1920. So, of course, the planes were not like super advanced at the time. But the Type 82, which is what she trained on, had one cockpit for an instructor, another behind it for a student. There was no steering wheel and there weren't even brakes. What? Right. So the instructor um, would... Yeah. So the instructor and then, of course... Bessie, whenever she was learning how to fly uh-huh. it, handled a large wooden stick was like the size of a baseball bat to control the p- plane's pitch and roll because there was no steering wheel. So it was just like a, you, you like steered essentially with this giant stick. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it moved. And then you would move a rudder ball with your feet <gasps> to control the yaw, which I'm not exactly sure what that is. But I think it's like what's happening with the. It sounds like a, like with the paddle boat. You know what I mean? Like when you move your feet in a paddle boat, it moves the propeller in the back to make it move. Yeah, I I don't is know. I like guess a, I should have looked up what that it is. It sounds like if the Flintstones flew a plane, this is what it would yeah, be. Yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah. yeah, you so you're moving your feet to control one aspect of it, and then you have this giant stick to control another. Wow. And then to stop the plane, the pilot would land. So essentially, you just go to the ground, and then you drag a metal skid along the tail along the ground to stop, which is I feel like people horrifying. should not have been flying until that was a little bit more finished. Advanced? Yeah, like, yeah, I just feel like, like no one should have ever been flying that. Like, did, ever, did most people die learning how to be a pilot? Well, well. Okay, so she was <laughs> learning aerial maneuvers, like loop-the-loops um, In that fucking spins. plane? Yes, and and while she was doing this, she witnessed an accident that killed another student. And she said, it was a terrible shock to my nerves, but I never lost them. I kept going. So she was like, I look, 
you had to when you entered into this and I'm sure a lot of people for a lot of people it was worth it because imagine flying being this pretty new thing and it's it had to have seemed magical that we could like take to the sky and defy gravity in in that way I mean that's why we had astronauts too that were willing to kind of take that risk because if it paid off the payoff would be that much greater yeah definitely yeah on June 15th, 1921, she received her pilot's license from the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale Ooh. and became the first black woman and first person of Native American descent to earn an aviation pilot's license. And she was also the first black person and first Native American to earn an international aviation license from the Federation Aeronautic International. Wow. Um, and she was determined to polish her skills. So she spent the next two months taking lessons from a French ace pilot near Paris. And in September 1921, she sailed for America. And her dream was to own her own plane and open up her own flight school uh-huh. in order to make. But in order to make money to finance her dream, she decided to become a stunt flyer. She was like, this is how. I'm going to get people to, to, in order to make enough money to teach people how to fly. What a great way to make money. Yeah, but also scary. Also very scary. Um, (laughs) And and she knew that she was going to need more aviation training. Once she came back and was like, this is how I'm going to make money for my flight school. She was like, I need more training in order to pull off all of these dangerous stunts that I want to attempt to do. So she couldn't find an adequate teacher in the United States. So she sailed back to Europe and studied in France, the Netherlands and Germany before returning to the United States in 1922 to begin her career in exhibition flying. She made her first appearance in an American air show on September 3rd, 1922 at an event honoring veterans of the all black 396th infantry regiment of world war one, which I think is so cool that that was her first event was this like event to honor black. Yeah, very fitting. Black veterans. Yeah. Um, and this event was also sponsored by her friend Abbott of the Chicago Defender newspaper. And it billed Coleman as the world's greatest woman flyer. Oh, wow. She. Yeah. Which I think is probably part of how she got the gig. Yeah. You know, like this guy was, seemed very invested in her future and her success, yeah. which is really cool. She became known as Queen Bess and was highly regarded and admired by both black and white audiences. She dazzled spectators by walking on the wings while aloft or parachuting from the plane while the co-pilot took the controls. Mm -mm. She was, Mm -mm. I know, so scary. Walking on the wings of the plane. This plane is already dangerous. I'm so scared of heights. she's like, getting out. I'm so... Walking on the wings. Um, She was famous for her loop-the-loops and figure eights and was known to stop at nothing to complete a dangerous stunt. In Los Angeles, she broke a leg and three ribs when her plane stalled and crashed on February 22nd, 1923. Where in L.A. was she, it? We should visit the site. I don't know, but we totally <laughs> should. She begged the doctor at the scene to, quote, patch her up so that she could go to the sh- go back to the show. Oh, my God. <laughs> She'd broken her leg and three and ribs. ribs. She just crashed her plane. Oh, my God. And she said, um, so he called an ambulance. He's like, I'm not taking you back there. Like, we have to take you to the hospital. But she um, wrote a telegram whenever she got to the hospital. She said, tell them all that as soon as I can walk, I'm going to fly. (laughs) Bessie was also beautiful, you know, and it added to her allure both domestically and abroad. So at one point she was approached 
about portraying herself in a biopic, but she turned down the part after learning that the movie began with her character appearing in rags, which she found to be demeaning and undignified. And she said, no Uncle Tom stuff for me. Oh, yeah. She told Billboard magazine. Good. She's like, we're not doing that. Yeah. And what I, I've always wondered that when people play themselves in biopics, that's got to be such a weird Thing. But either way, I mean, it could have been a really great opportunity for it her. It could have been a really she, great platform, but it wouldn't have been the platform that would have benefited her in any way if that's the way they were going to well, portray yeah. her. Right, yeah. She was very self-confident and self-assured, clearly. Um, and, you know, she had a very honest vision of what she wanted for her own life, yeah. you know, and really, like, had a lot of integrity in following through with that. So, though she never did open her flight school, she toured the country giving flight lessons, performing in-flight shows, and encouraged African Americans and women to learn how to fly. She said, I shall never be satisfied until we have men of the race who can fly. We must have aviators if we are to keep pace with the times. It's true. In Yeah, yeah. I mean, and she inspired not only women, but also black men. She was like, we should be doing this. There's no reason why we can't. And I I think very often they were saying like, you know, we don't have like the mental capacity. We're not smart enough to know how to do this, this thing. And I'm showing you that, yes, you are. And we can. In late 1925, Bessie purchased her own plane, a Jenny JN4 with an OX5 engine. Oh, one of those? Those are the best. Yeah. Exactly. I read that and I was like, I'm going to say it, but I have no clue what that means. So um, she soon returned to her hometown in Texas to perform for a large crowd. But because Texas was still segregated, the managers had planned to create two separate entrances for African-Americans and white people to get into the stadium. She refused to perform unless they used only one gate for everybody to enter. And they had a lot of back and forth and negotiations um, with with her people and their people. Yeah. And finally, the managers agreed to have only one gate, but wouldn't relent um, on allowing everyone to sit together. But that's such a so, bizarre concept when everybody is mm-hmm. getting together to especially watch a black performer. Right. Mm-hmm. You're still going to give the white people the better opportunity. You know what I mean? It's just it's such yeah. a backwards way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, it's wild, but uh, they still had to sit in segregated sections within the stadium. So she agreed to perform, um, but she did kind of become renowned for advocating for herself yeah. and having these positions and not just saying, like, I'm just going to accept whatever you're willing to give me. Um, she was just like, no, like, I'm the talent here. People are showing up to see yeah. me. So I should have some say in how it's run. And even though she didn't win both these battles, she did manage to get like one change yeah. made, which I think is is amazing. Definitely. So she had scheduled an air show for May 1st, 1926. And on April 30th, she and her co-pilot, who was a mechanic named William Wills, took a practice flight in her new plane. I feel like her this Jenny. isn't going to end well. Well. Because why would you be okay. telling it? She, like, she, well, she had an air show planned. Okay, yes. tell me what happened. So Bessie sat in the second cockpit and she was unharnessed so that she could peer over the side to identify a good place to parachute a landing for the show the next day. At about 3,000 feet in the air, a loose wrench got stuck in the engine of the aircraft and witnesses said that the plane accelerated suddenly 
um, and then nosedived, went into a tail spin and flipped upside Mm -hmm. down about 500 feet in the air. Oh, my God. Right. Airplanes at this time did not have a roof or any protection. And as Bessie was not wearing her seatbelt, she fell from the plane, Mm -hmm. plunged to the ground and died on impact. Oh, my God. Yes, she was 34 years oh old. My, oh, my God. The image in my head of a person falling from the sky won't leave. It's it's really terrible. It's really, really terrible. Oh. Like, I was reading about her life. And again, this is one of those things where for as often as you see her image, you would think we would know that. Yeah. That, like, that's how she that died. She and that she died that young. fell from 500 feet? Holy shit. And I remembered reading that and being like, also, gosh, planes were so unsafe. Like, there was no roof It, it above was like her. being in a roller coaster and not being strapped in. Like, I literally just pictured the plane flipping upside down and Bessie falling. Like, oh, God. And even if she had been strapped in, it wouldn't have mattered because the dived. aircraft crashed yeah a few feet away from coleman's body and wills also died and his body was pinned under the plane (gasps) oh god yes rescuers did arrive even though he was already dead they did try to move the plane off of him but and this is the most 1920s bullshit i've ever heard one of the rescuers was like now's a good time for a cigarette because he lit (gasps) a match to have a cigarette and ignited gas fumes, causing the entire site to go up in You're flame. You're fucking kidding. Wait, okay, so I have a follow-up question then. If everything went up, did they get the bodies out in time? Was Will still underneath the... I don't the- think so. <gasps> yeah, he was still underneath what the plane. pieces of fucking shit. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I'm sure, yeah. I don't mean to put this image in people's minds, but I'm sure their bodies are already unrecognizable as they are. Of course. And like, if you were to have any sort of like, burial or funeral would already be difficult but to have them just be incinerated and gone right oh god yeah yeah i mean and i don't know how close bessie was to the site that went up but i mean i'm sure will's body was completely burned up and her body would have been mangled anyway because she fell 500 feet i mean it's that from a plane yeah i mean your body gains like momentum and speed as it goes down right there's no chance Mm -hmm. of her surviving the fall horrible horrible Um, The mainstream press, despite Bessie's notoriety, it barely noted her death. It focused more on Wills, who was a white man, um, but black newspapers gave front page coverage to her death. Her body was um, displayed both in Florida and Chicago, where 10,000 people paid their respects, and journalist Ida B. Wells, who is a lynching crusader, who we will definitely talk about on this podcast. She was my other guest that you were going to cover. Yes, I actually thought about covering Me her. Too. Um but she led the funeral ceremonies for Bessie. Oh. In 1931, the Challenger Pilots Association of Chicago started a tradition of flying over Coleman's grave every year. By 1977, African American women pilots formed the Bessie Coleman Aviators Club. In 1995, the Bessie Coleman stamp was made to remember all of her accomplishments. Mm. In 2001, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And in 2006, she was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. Wow. And that's Bessie Coleman. Well, yeah. And what you just said really makes a lot of sense as to why we don't have any knowledge of this, like, 
very tragic way that she died, I mean, mainstream media wasn't even covering it. They only cared when she was doing something spectacular that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that they could when, ooh When she was and, entertaining them. Yeah, ooh and right. ah, and, yeah. you know, that they could gawk at. They didn't care about her as a person. And that's even why, when you said, you know, that she dazzled both black and white audiences, well, it's like, yes, at the time, it's like, they want to see the act and the performance, but the person behind, and it's still true th- today, you know, the person behind yeah, mm-hmm. the talent isn't respected. So the fact that, right. you know, they mention her accolades and all these great things is wonderful, but you're missing another very important part of her life and you're misrepresenting the entire story. Well, and even then, I mean, I think that Bessie Coleman kind of came into popularity in the 90s. Popularity meaning that she was added to all the images that we saw growing up in Black History Month in schools, probably in 1995-ish when that stamp came out. I feel like is when people kind of started to take notice. But even then, it was so surface level. I mean, she wasn't inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame until 2006, which is crazy I mean it's just wild yeah wow I was just looking up I looked up Bessie Coleman crime scene because I literally do that with every single death just to see if Mm -hmm. what I find but I found a article that says only Negro woman aviator is killed in practice flight white man who was handling publicity for exhibition also killed yeah Mm. it's terrible I mean I, I yeah the fact that she died that way to me I mean, she was obviously made of tougher stuff and different stuff than I'm made of. So yeah, and she had seen somebody else go down. You know, I think that that Wait, was something she, she was had very. To know. Yeah, I think she was. A, it was a possibility. Aware of the sacrifice, aware of the. I feel like there's got to be with some of these people who are doing these really trailblazing things that there has to be like some acknowledgement of that. I feel like somewhere in them where it's like, what I do has a greater purpose than just for myself. You know, so the fact that right. she wanted to do the most daring, the most crazy, be the most notable was so that it wasn't just about her. It was about everybody else. So really, in the end, losing her life to her. Right. And, wasn't and I as feel important. like and I feel like she did all of the things that she did for a purpose. I don't think she ever lost sight of what she wanted to provide you know the opportunities that she wanted to be able to provide for women and you know people of color going into aviation she really wanted to open these doors for people she wanted to open that school yeah you know that that, those that's really what she wanted out of this yeah exactly and I think that's something that is very similar about both the women that we talked about is that neither of them were willing to bend at all you Mm -hmm, know mm -hmm. even as society tried to mold them into something that they wanted them to be they held their ground and they were aware, I think, of the of the impact that they had and why they had to hold their ground and be confident and strong, you know? Yeah. And and yeah. they're just badass women. Like, yes. definitely have oh more cojones than I do to stand up for myself. So, hundred <laughs> percent. I wouldn't have even been brave enough to get in one of those planes, let alone try and figure out how to fly one. (laughs) I get anxiety driving my car. Oh, my God. I know. I would love to learn how to fly a plane one day, but I am very scared of heights. So that would be interesting. (sighs) Wow. Oh, my gosh. Well, I hope that you enjoyed another Feminist Faves. I'm so glad that we had Keegan back for one last episode doing another one for Black History Month. It was a little bit different than... Years passed since our schedule was different, but I'm really glad that we got one more in together. 
Me too. Yeah. All right, everybody. If you want to send us any news stories that you want us to cover, uh, we are working on our Patreon and our merch. We want to know your thoughts about that. Do you want shirts? Do you want buttons? Do you want stickers? Are there quotes that you like that you want on the merch? Anything like that. What do you want to hear on the Patreon? I'm going to stop talking. You know what to do. Go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yamp Podcast. Y A N F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go to the group page and chat with the other listeners and then hop over to the business page and leave us a review. When you're done there and you haven't done so already, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. That helps us so, so much and we really appreciate it. All right, that's all we got for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. To rage on. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.